Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings. I'm Robert Lee Kilpatrick, the chair of the Health and Medicine member-led forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco. And I'd like to thank you for joining this interesting program today. You know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, what a lot of people realized was how important their health and wellness is. And uh, uh, they want to know more about, you know, what to do to uh, stay healthy. So today in our Healthy Society series, uh, which is titled the Science of Wellness and You, we are really fortunate to have uh, a pioneer uh, talking to us about this topic. Dr. Lee Hood, MD, PhD, is a recipient of the National Medal of Science. He's a co-founder of the Institute of Systems Biology up in Seattle and a chief science officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. You know, Dr. Hood has played a role in the founding of of 15 biotechnology companies, including uh, Amgen and Applied Biosystems, and uh, he holds uh, 36 patents, and I believe he's published uh, over 150 peer-reviewed articles. So clearly we have a phenomenal expert in front of us today, and Lee, I have found, is an excellent communicator to the public. So without further ado, I'd like to hand you over to Dr. Lee Hood, who's going to talk to us about the science of wellness, and I'll disappear for about half an hour and come back, and we'll have a conversation. Hello, Lee. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited about uh, sending you um, the possibilities that we have. Uh, So as Robbie said, we're going to talk about the science of wellness in you. And the whole idea is to give you an idea of how a new kind of medicine, we'll call 21st century medicine, is going to revolutionize wellness uh, for each of us. And I'll be very specific about how I think that is uh, actually going to come about. So what exactly do I mean by 21st century medicine? Well, it's a medicine with four characteristics. It is predictive. It can predict very early when you might have a disease. It's preventive. It can then do something about it before you ever get the disease. It's personalized. It operates on you uniquely and it demands your participation. And what is true about P4 medicine is there are two major domains, a wellness domain and a disease domain. And I would argue until very recently, wellness has largely been ignored. But I think this P4 vision uh, requires one interesting question. How can you execute this idealized vision. And that's exactly what 21st century medicine is all about. So it is a P4 medicine, as I've described. It's an N of one medicine where you are the center of medicine and how it operates. And it's all about following and optimizing each of your health trajectories with data-driven longitudinal assessments for body and for brain. 
Let me tell you, we'll talk mostly about the body, but there are very powerful ways of optimizing health for the brain as well. Now that's the vision. How do we plan to execute it or implement it? It's through a project called the Million Person Project, which I'll describe in some detail. And this project will generate on a million people an enormous data ecosystem, which will transform our understanding of healthcare. We'll create a biobank to test hypotheses that come from computational analyses of the data. And we're setting a program up for both patients and physician education. And we'll be creating partnerships with academia, with healthcare systems, and with industry to help implement the Million Person Project. And it's going to lead to enormous medical innovations, as you will see. So let me give you a little history of how I came to think about 21st century medicine. And it really started when I went to Caltech in 1970 as a young assistant professor and kind of deciding what my career should be about. I always had a fascination with human biology, but I was kind of staggered by the enormous biological complexity of, of human biology. And the question in 1970 was, where did we start thinking about this enormous complexity. And, and the, uh, the analogy of the elephants and six blind men, I think is really useful in this regard. Each of the blind men felt a different part of the elephant and declared the elephant was a snake or a rug or a spear or a tree or whatnot. And of course, this was just an observation of the outer part of the individual. It didn't say anything about what was happening inside the elephant himself. And, and frankly, up until recently, medicine has been very much like this. When you went to a physician, it was mostly checking you over physically. He might do a panel of 10 or perhaps even 15 or 20 uh, different blood tests or something like that. But that was a minuscule number to deal with the incredible complexity. And indeed, it was this analogy that brought up for me two different distinct ideas. The first was one way to deal with complexity is to generate a lot of data from the object of complexity. And what I envisioned is literally billions of measurements on each human individual and the measurements included, uh, both internal measurements included the genome, which is the core DNA that is the source code for life, and something called the phenome, which is essentially everything else we can measure about the elephant or human individual. Blood measurements and, and um microbiome measurements and digital measurements of various sorts. So the genome and phenome analyses at the level of billions was key. So that was wellness in you in 21st century medicine. This was the description of 21st century medicine and the two domains that it encompasses, wellness and disease. And this was the uh, basic uh, 
vision for 21st century medicine, which was uh, P4 medicine, uh, a N of one medicine, that is a medicine of each individual, and then following it with a data-driven health trajectory for each individual that in principle lasts throughout your lifetime. And we'll use the million person project for implementation and that'll create a data ecosystem, a biobank, physician and patient education partnerships and medical innovations. We talked about the complexity of human beings and then the analogy of the elephant and the six blind men and the two ideas that that led to, namely big data with billions of measurements and systems thinking, that is, how do you take all these measurements and translate them into biology? And that's the systems thinking that is global and holistic and uh, integrative. And it's these two points that set me on a series of paradigm changes that I either led or uh, co-led uh, of uh, that actually, on the one hand, uh, led to deep understanding of complexity, but on the other hand, framed what 21st century medicine was about. And of course, paradigm shifts are these wonderful sh radical shifts in how we understand a particular discipline or science pioneered by uh, the structure of scientific uh, revolution and everything. Uh, and I read this in 1973 and immediately started thinking in terms of the two points I made earlier about a series of paradigm changes that really uh, catalyzed the, our view of 21st century medicine. So in the first uh, 30 years of my career, I developed six different instruments, basically for reading and writing DNA and proteins. And this led to the ability to do billions of measurements on human beings. And one of these instruments, the human automated human gene, uh, uh, DNA sequencer, led to being invited to the first meeting on the Human Genome Project that laid out this ambitious project to decipher human heredity so that we knew the basic source code of life. And this, of course, allowed us to compare human variability with wellness and disease phenotypes and understand how the genome encoded both wellness and disease. And of course, to create the technologies that we needed to uh, decipher this complexity, uh, I proposed a cross-disciplinary biology approach that Caltech rejected, but the University of Washington and Bill Gates made it possible for me to move there and set a department that was wildly successful in changing genomes and proteomes and cell biology and many other kinds of things. And it laid the framework for creating the independent nonprofit Institute for Systems Biology in uh, 2000, where we blended together the cross-disciplinary framework with systems thinking, global and holistic. 
And what this global and holistic thinking about disease led to were concepts we've already discussed, namely 21st century medicine, and especially the vision of P4 healthcare and P4 medicine, and the importance of both wellness and disease. And indeed, it was in 2014 when we started our population studies on uh, wellness, the first population studies ever done. And these culminated in a, a company called Arafail that recruited 5,000 individuals to study something we called scientific or quantitative wellness. And we'll talk about that because that's obviously central to understanding uh, health in the future for each of us. And of course, the, the final paradigm change came in 2016 when the CEO of Providence St. Joseph's, a large hospital, nonprofit hospital system, approached me and said, would you like to be chief science officer and bring into affiliation ISP? And I agreed to and immediately began planning the million-person project where we would do population health, not on just 5,000 individuals, but by 200 times as many, a million different individuals. And of course, the populations that gave us very deep initial insights into this bold new strategy were these 5,000 deeply phenotyped individuals over four years with Arafail, where we did a complete genome analysis and longitudinal phenome analysis that I'll define in a moment. And second, in February of 2000, uh, uh, 2020, we started an observational uh, trial on COVID-19 patients using not only the genome and longitudinal phenome analyses, but something called deep immune phenotyping, where we took a picture of the immune system never before possible that revealed in enormous detail the trajectory of the patient, the trajectory of the drugs, and the trajectory of the disease. Fundamental new insights. So we won't talk about it because there isn't time today, but this deep immune phenotyping is going to be the key to understanding in detail many chronic diseases. What the data-driven uh, genome longitudinal phenome analysis included was the sequencing of the genome and analysis of 1,200 blood analytes, including clinical chemistries and metabolites and proteins, the ability to analyze the gut microbiome, and we did those twice a year, those two studies. And then we used digital health devices to get uh, self-tracking uh, and, and health measurements. And together, for each of the 5,000 individuals, that created a data cloud, which, when analyzed, could lead to relevant actionable possibilities among a category we started with of about 200 from the literature to optimize wellness and minimize disease. And later, we more or less doubled that uh, possibility. What 
was really revolutionary was this thing we called uh, scientific wellness. Namely, it was the ability to take each individual's data cloud to analyze it and get a unique list of actionable possibilities for each individual, which if acted upon would either improve wellness or let them avoid uh, disease. And coaches brought these actionable possibilities uh, to each individual. They were trained in psychology and very convincing about doing, carrying out the actionable possibilities. And when they did, that led to excellent outcomes. And these included insights that came from mutations in your genome or critical blood markers or personal coach, through personal coaching. We could optimize your nutrition, your heart health, your digestion. We used family history to analyze things that were impossible to easily analyze otherwise. And we were able to deal with stress and uh, optimize wellness in a variety of ways. And I just want to make the point, wellness has two interesting dimensions. The average person is probably right toward the lower end of their wellness ladder. And of course, what moves you up step by step is the uh, carrying out these actionable possibilities and the ideal that we'd like to be able to do is move a person up to the welderly of Eric Topol, people in their 80s and 90s that have never been sick, never taken a drug, never been in a hospital, who are fully functional uh, mentally and physically. And that's the ideal situation that we believe if you follow scientific wellness as a lifelong journey that you can move mentally and physically into your 90s or 100s uh, fully functional. So uh, there is a vertical dimension in that we can improve your wellness from what it is today. And there's a horizontal dimension in that we'll be able to extend the trajectory of your wellness far beyond what it typically is, uh, is seen in most individuals today. And the research insights that came from these 5,000 data clouds are striking. So we've talked about scientific wellness. Because we had people that ranged from 21 to 93, we could actually determine an algorithm for your uh, uh, determining your biological age, the age your body said you were, as well as, uh, as contrasted with your birthday. And the lower the biological age is below your chronologic age, the, the more healthy is your aging. And we were able to show for men that stayed in the AeroFail program over the four years, they lost a year of biological age per year in the program. And for women, it was 1.5 years. So these are striking decreases that validate the scientific wellness and its power that we talked about. The, the other thing that we propose then is every year you get your biological age, and that is an integrated view backward to see how effectively you've aged. 
And as you'll come to see, we can make recommendations about how to optimize aging. We looked at uh, people in the Airvale population with 40 different diseases and showed for each, every one of them had a biological age well above their chronologic age. And for diabetes, it was six years above their biological age. And we were actually, because we used metabolites to do the biological age calculation, able to determine biological ages for your lipids and your immune uh, response for your liver, for your kidney, for your heart, for your metabolism, as well as the global biologic age I talked about earlier. And the things that you were missing with regard to metabolites gave us clues as how to improve your biological aging, that is decrease it globally and for each of the individual uh, organs. The other thing that uh, came out of these studies is we looked at polygenic scores for 54 different diseases like diabetes and heart disease and a variety of other things. And because we had genome sequence, we could convert them into genetic risk. And we were actually able to show that for people of high genetic risk, we had to treat you differently than people of low genetic risk. And this means that is a predictive strategy that's very powerful, again, for optimizing wellness. And the final observation that we made that was very striking is we saw 167 wellness to disease transitions in this population of 5,000, 35 of them for cancer. We studied five in detail and what we did was look at the bloods drawn prior to the clinical diagnosis of the disease, and we were able to show for proteins outliers among the 1,200 we looked at that were able to indicate the transition from wellness to disease has occurred. And we showed for several cancers that this transition was a good four years before the clinical diagnosis could ever be made. So our vision for the future and the Million Person Project, were, where we'll see 175,000 of these transitions, is to be able to identify for all major chronic diseases when the earliest transition occurs, and then use systems approaches to create therapies that can reverse the disease before it ever manifests itself as a disease. And we're actually, uh, then we've got through these analyses, the quantitative data for scientific wellness. We have healthy aging. We have the ability to begin eliminating chronic diseases and the predictive medicine of your genetics. And to talk about elimination of chronic diseases, the next uh, disease we've taken on to carry this out is Alzheimer's, where with metabolic PET scanning, you can see changes in the brain four to 10 years prior to clinical diagnosis. So we're using the data clouds on high-risk individuals 
to be able to get a blood marker or a panel of them for the earliest transition. And once we see those early transitions, we're using multimodal therapies that came out of systems thinking about Alzheimer's disease. And let me say the old ways of thinking about it are culminated by the fact there are more than 500 in a row failed clinical trials for Alzheimer's drugs. The establishment has thought about Alzheimer's in entirely the wrong way. And it turns out it's going to be a lifestyle uh, 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 supplement uh, kind of disease that we can modify. But the multimodal therapy looks very effective in reversing early Alzheimer's. And we now have three different clinical trials looking at various aspects of the multimodal therapy. But the big vision is, I predict in five to 10 years, we'll be able to deal nicely with 80% of Alzheimer's, which today costs us about $500 billion per year. So the big idea is to do prediction through the earliest biomarkers, to do prevention through the multimodal therapies. And we already have evidence that we can reverse very early stage with the multimodal therapies. And then we'd like to scale it to the U.S. and developed and then developing countries of the world. And this brings us to this powerful vision 21st century medicine that's N of 1 medicine, that's P4 medicine, that looks at individual trajectories, and you understand how we can do that and how we can begin to optimize health. And of course, there are not just two stages, wellness and disease. There's the third one, which is the transition. So we hope to be able to extend wellness both in a vertical and in a horizontal sense for each individual, we hope to be able to reverse the initiation of disease, the transition from wellness to disease before it ever clinically manifests. And we hope to be able to deal with disease effectively when it slips through. I'll say that contemporary medicine focuses almost entirely on this later stage of disease after a clinical diagnosis has been made, and often it's way too complicated uh, to be able to reverse. How do we realize 21st century medicine? It's through this one million person genome phenome project that I've described. And this project has five big challenges that I think we can deal with through appropriate development of computational platforms. One, and I think this is the biggest challenge of all, how do we educate a million patients and their physicians? And how do we effectively consent these patients? And again, focusing on a single healthcare system facilitates doing this easily. We're far along in developing the software for doing these things. Number two, how do we go from patients to the samples we need and get them to the biobank and then to the data generation vendors that do the genome sequencing and longitudinal phenotype quantification. And again, we've automated software that allows us to do this in a pretty effective fashion. And then from the vendors to reacquire the data, 
and together with electronic health records, put them in a cloud, and then use the classic analytic tools of computational analysis, uh, machine learning, AI, knowledge graphs, uh, and the like. And the idea is that we'll generate a whole series of, in a sense, actionable possibilities. One, to optimize healthcare. Two, to invite new partners to come into this complex. And those partners will span the entire spectrum of healthcare companies. And we're just starting that recruitment process and have already gotten several uh, to agree. Number three, using genome-phenome analyses and this deep immune phenotype we've talked about, we're creating decentralized trials to study key medical problems that we think we can attack absolutely immediately. And then finally, we're going to create a lot of innovative new products. So in the first three years, we'd like to move to 100,000 people to prove that we can do the challenging parts of education and recruitment. And then in the final four years, we'll shift it up to a million. And we're beginning today with a pilot program of 5,000 people that is already underway. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. I want to emphasize the important role that Providence St. Joseph plays. It's a large healthcare system, 25,000 physicians, 51 hospitals scattered across seven Western states. And it gives us a unique capacity for scaling up uh, to the million patients. And at the same time, it gives us the ability to recruit, collect three types of data. One, from the clinical research trials they're carrying out, and they're carrying out hundreds of these. Number two, from the care they take for individual patients to understand how data has helped in the service of uh, individual patient care. And we've really focused on COVID-19 in that regard. And then more recently, we have individual wellness centers within the Providence hospitals that we will use to reach out to the community to bring scientific wellness to surrounding community uh, systems. And this is how we can begin to think in the not-too-distant future about bringing scientific wellness and healthy aging uh, to individuals like yourselves. The 5,000-person pilot project, Providence has already committed uh, at least $20 million to getting it started. And we're uh, recruiting the patients. We're going to be delivering actionable possibilities to the patients. And we're developing this critically important infrastructure for computational infrastructure, for education, for consent, for sample analysis, flow, and recollection, and then for the analysis and integration of the data. And finally, uh, the platforms will need to be able to do distributed clinical trials, which means we can take you as a patient from virtually any location and integrate you uh, into our trials. And of course, the biobank and the data ecosystem will be growing uh, as a result of this. 
we will include data beyond the biological data that I've talked about up until now. We'll have social determinants of health data. We'll have claims data and success data. And then we'll have the clinical data, including electronic health records. And this will fundamentally change how we learn about wellness and disease, how we organize and deliver care for wellness and disease, how we measure and price and manage risk, and finally, how we innovate. It is absolutely going to create opportunities for clinical health care with literally thousands of new actionable possibilities to facilitate scientific wellness and healthy aging in their broadest context. These will have to be delivered by AI in a way that is understandable and digestible by the physicians who will be delivering it to the patients. The partners will come in and use the ecosystem to analyze data in the context of their own needs. That is, for example, payers, how can they reduce the risk on different diseases? And we can do this beautifully through stratification of common diseases into subtle subcommon diseases that require different kinds of treatments. And we'll have the distributed clinical trials that will look at Alzheimer's and look at healthy aging and, and look at the stratification of complex diseases and so forth. And we think will lead to innovation and a, and a real world leadership in the U.S. for 21st century medicine. So returning back to the personal, I'll give you my own experience, which started uh, in 2014 with scientific wellness and more recently healthy aging. So I've lost uh, about 25 pounds. I'm at my college football uh, weight. Uh, I exercise probably an hour and a half to two hours typically per day. My resting pulse rate changed from about 50 to 40 or 41 now. I've used continuous glucose monitoring, a very simple device, to be able to optimize my diet uniquely for my own genomics. And we're each different in how we optimize our diets at the individual level. Intermittent fasting, that is not eating after a dinner until lunch the next day, has been a very effective tool for uh, optimizing healthy aging processes and so forth. Simple ultrasound electronic analyses, uh, cardiac uh, analyses of uh, cardiac uh, ultrasound and so forth, let you detect very early atherosclerosis. I take statins. They have complications. I followed the possible complications very, very uh, carefully with scientific wellness. I've corrected five nutritional deficiencies beautifully, and they have made a difference. And with vitamin D, where I was low, as were initially about 90% of the patients we took into Aerofail, what we found is in some cases we could restore low levels with a simple 1,000 uh, milligram dose of vitamin D. But for other individuals, 
because they had genetic variants that blocked the uptake of vitamin D. You needed megadoses. And I was one of those. And it took me 15,000 international units of vitamin D for a period of several months to bring my level up to normal. And then I needed to use larger levels to keep it at normal and so forth. I was one who had very high mercury from uh, eating tuna sushi. That absolutely reversed when I gave up tuna sushi, substituted uh, salmon, and it works perfectly. Inflammation is really critically important, and you can control it with diet, with supplements. I read a fascinating article today in a study of 85,000 individuals in the UK where it's demonstrated for depression, inflammation is a major factor. And we now have powerful tools to monitor and correct inflammation. My biological age is 15 years younger than my chronologic age, and that means I'm aging in a healthy way. But the real key is the fourth P, participatory. I realized, as I hope you will, that it is your responsibility to drive your own wellness and to acquire the insights and to insist on the kinds of things that are going to become possible for you. And let me give you one fascinating observation about my pulse during the severest bout of flu I've had in the past 20 years. And on the y-axis is my pulse rate, and on the x-axis is time. And my ordinary pulse rate was about uh, 40, 41 or so. These little blips that you see turn out to be airplanes, where in some airlines, you're not completely oxygenated. But what happened is when I began to feel sick, my pulse shot up to a peak that took about a week to get to. And frankly, uh, it took a couple of weeks to return back to normal and so forth. And it tracked beautifully this kind of disease. And I'll just say without going into it, digital health measurements are going to transform our ability to add critical information to scientific wellness. And I have a long list of things that you can think about there. And uh, they're going to be a very important part in the future of uh, scientific wellness. So what are the actionable possibilities for you that within the relatively near future you can think about? I think you'll have access to scientific wellness and the actionable possibilities we've talked about here. It may be through communities uh, that are adjacent to Providence, it may be through startup companies that are going to be getting started that will be pushing the idea of uh, scientific wellness. And exactly the same is true of healthy aging. There are so many things you can do to optimize your aging process and certainly taking your biological age and late. And there are uh, tests that are available that you can do that. And I can make that information available to you if, if uh, you're interested. We're going to have more than 150 actionable possibilities that include things that the American College of Medical Genetics identified, cancer panels that lead to predisposition to cancer, and many others, including wellness possibilities. 
Pharmacogenomics means we can look at your susceptibility to drug complications in, for many common drugs. And we think there are more than 7,000 rare diseases, and an example of this is a disease like diabetes, where I'll guarantee you it isn't one disease. It's probably going to be 30 or 40 diseases or possibly more, and we'll need to be able to treat those in unique individual fashions, and we'll be able to identify and assess what kind of treatments are appropriate. And uh, Mendelian recessives like hemochromatosis that leads to very high iron in the blood and serious complications. It turns out for many of the Mendelian recessive diseases, classic view has been that you need two bad copies of the gene to have the disease. It isn't true. In a number of cases, one bad copy for some people can lead to that disease, and we need to be able to follow all of those and, and deal with them at the beginning where they're simple to deal with. And the thousands of new actionable possibilities that will come from the million-person project are really striking. Cost savings are going to be staggering. I can see two-stage, 100-person drug trials where the first stage, we give the drug and we identify biomarkers that identify the subpopulation that responds to the drug. And in the second trial of 100, we'll have all responders, so we'll get 98% response. And that's the kind of statistics the FDA needs to approve drugs. And I'm not saying we can reduce it to 200 people, but we can cut it down enormously. And that drug trials these days probably cost between 2 and $3 billion per drug trial. So think about how much the failed uh, uh, Alzheimer's drugs have cost. It is staggering beyond belief to think about that. Alzheimer's costs uh, the healthcare system half a trillion per year. Suppose in five to 10 years, we can deal with 80% of that. That's the saving of hundreds of trillions of dollars. And exactly the same is true as we cut down chronic diseases by early detection and prevention. Scientific wellness and aging is going to prevent us from transitioning to disease. Again, it'll be staggering savings. And following high-risk genetic individuals to uh, ward off their earliest transitions and reverse them before they become serious, all of these stagger up, lead up to enormous savings. And, and this new 21st century medicine gives us many opportunities to improve quality, to deal with an aging population, to deal with the explosion of chronic disease, and as I just mentioned, to deal with cost. So again, the vision is each of you will be followed with regard to health trajectory to assess and optimize your wellness, to deal with transitions, and to avoid uh, transition to disease. The Million Person Project is going to lead in enormous depth and, and dimensionality to scientific wellness, to healthy aging, to the ability to reverse early disease transitions, and to genetic risk, and it will, it will lead to striking cost deductions. 
So in a sense, the second genome project is the million person project. And the first genome project where we did the sequence of just one human genome was really pioneered in the beginning by the Department of Energy. It was opposed by NIH up until the final year. They argued they're doing the same thing. We don't need it. Turned out not to be correct. And it was funded by Cong Congress with new money, which made the small science people feel well. And it played the critical role in deciphering the human genome that made it possible to do what the second genome project is going to do. What I'll say is a 10-year estimate after 2003, when the first genome was done, suggested that 800 billion had been generated in in return on the genome project for an investment of $3 billion. So that's a return on investment that really is staggering. The Million Person Project will amplify by a million fold the genomes we have, plus much more additional information. And it is going to catalyze the first paradigm change in medicine in the last 110 years the transformation to N of 1, P4, individualized medicine. I'm going to ask the federal uh, health infrastructural funding uh, outside of NIH for appropriations to do this. And I think it's going to bring a data-driven health trajectory in time to each individual through 21st century medicine, which will be wellness-driven. And I'll guarantee you the second genome ROI, return on investment, will far exceed that of the first ROI. So with that, I'll close and ask uh, Robbie actually to return back to the uh, fold for questions and comments and whatnot. So I'll stop sharing my uh, screen now. And... Uh, Robbie? Wow, Lee, what a story. What a story. Many questions. <laughs> wow. On behalf of the audience, I'm sure we're incredibly amazed. You know, uh, early on in your presentation, you showed the cover of a book by Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, in which he talks about a paradigm shift or a significant transformation. And this is obviously, you know, on a, on a par with that. So my question is, it seems to me at the heart of your project is a shift from the current system, which is a disease-focused, disease management system. We call it a healthcare system, but it's really a disease management system, to a wellness system. Would you, would you agree with that? I, I agree with that totally, but it goes well beyond that. It's not just a shift to wellness. It's a shift to treating individual patients. Most of our medicine for disease today is still one pill treats all. If you think about statins, if you think about anti-blood pressure medicines, if we don't have pills for all the subtypes of those things that exist. And not only are we going to shift to an individual medicine, we're going to stratify diseases so we can treat each of those rarer subtypes in effective ways. So it is 
wellness-driven, it is going to be preventive by not letting you transition toward disease. And of course, the most important and interesting fact is the major factor for leading to uh, causing all chronic diseases is aging. So suppose we stop aging. We have the chance of blocking many individuals from transitioning to chronic diseases. It opens up a whole new world of thinking about preventive medicine. So, you know, one thing that came to my mind when I was listening to your talk, and you were talking about, I think, the fourth P, which is participation. You know, it occurred to me that in the world of wealth management or financial management, uh, a person who has some assets, you know, a dollar or more, might engage a financial planner to help them grow the value, to increase the value of that. So it's a it's a proactive and a positive uh, participatory situation. But in the world of healthcare, most people, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll until something breaks. So it's more yeah. of a reactive thing. Doctor, my finger doesn't work properly. What can you do for me? So it would be as if in the wealth management situation, you waited until you were bankrupt to get an advisor. But that's kind of how we view health. And when you were talking about wealth, I thought to myself, when we were talking about wellness, it's a completely positive concept compared to disease, isn't it? It is totally a positive concept. And, and you've really raised the critical question, I think. How do we educate an enormously diverse populace to the enormous advantages of wellness? And I, we're approaching it in a number of different ways. One, we have actually created a 20-subunit program for seniors in biology in high school that talks about all the different elements of P4 medicine and many of the things I've talked about here. Imagine kids that come out of that course that know all the things I've talked about here probably much better than uh, many of you were able to understand them in the brief rush I took you through. I think a second thing is I'm setting up clinical trials where I'll be unequivocally able to demonstrate the power of what healthy aging does to transform the likelihood of transition to chronic disease and the quality of life as you extend into the 60s, 70s, and 80s and demonstrate the possibility that there is an opportunity to move into your 90s and be mentally alert and physically capable. And of course, this raises a host of sociologic questions about, gee, will I have enough money to live there? Uh, I mean, will I be bored? Certainly, if you're only going to play golf, I suspect you would be bored if you lived into your hundreds, uh, physically fit and capable. So I, I, I think it, it, it could change how we think about retirement totally. Namely, I think in the future, retirement is just going to be a change in your state of life, and you move into a different dimension of things you're excited about. 
So Lee, you're obviously uh, an enthusiast and, and an incredibly knowledgeable, enthusiastic pioneer, but there's there's two areas where I can see possible obstacles and pushback, and, and I'd like to talk to you about those briefly. The first one is uh, at the level of when you talk about patients or people, let's not forget that during COVID, after a year of seeing you know horrific images of people, there are a substantial number of people who refuse to get vaccinated. So they, they, whether you think it's right or wrong, you know, that, that's their decision. And the federal government has now said they've gotten to a point where they think, you know, most of the people who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. We may not reach herd immunity. There is a skepticism by the general public sometimes about science. And in this case, I wonder, do you think there'll be pushback about uh, the issue of how personal data, genomic data is used, uh, accessed, and, and by whom? Yeah. So I think that's a very good and valid question. And I think people like me have an enormous responsibility it, to deal with a number of things. One, we have to be absolutely certain about the security of the data. Two, we have to make certain that it is in an environment that will not be transferred away to companies or other kinds of things. My view of the data ecosystem is that, one, the data are de-identified, and two, it's in a location where people who want to study it have to come to it and use their tools there. And in fact, I'm thinking about extending this whole vision internationally. And I've explored both in the EU and in China about the possibility of creating an international cloud where governments can help govern the rules of the cloud. But the essence is people who participate in 21st century wellness from all nations can put their data there and let it be analyzed by any relevant people that would like to analyze it, compare it, and come to understand the genetic as well as lifestyle and environmental differences among different races and things like this. So I think it's absolutely critical that we safeguard the data. And I think it's also critical that we pass laws that will prevent discrimination against either payers using the data or employers using the data, or even in some cases, family using the data for untoward um, uh, events uh, toward the individual. And we have some of those safeguards in place in the United States, but it's not fully developed. Long-term chronic insurance, there aren't safeguards against uh, uh, genetic discrimination and things. So we have to be able to manage all of those things. So the, the second major obstacle that I foresee is when you say, well, we'll save billions of dollars here and there, uh, obviously someone is making that money. So, you know, when you have a disease management system and every kind of procedure has a, a, it's a billable item, uh, there are vested interests. And, and this is part of the paradigm shift, say, from, you know, internal combustion cars to electric cars or from horses to cars. So you're talking about a dramatic, massive, perhaps the most massive transformation 
in healthcare and in history where there are many corporations and other groups that have a, a stake in the existing system. Uh, how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I could see it playing out several ways. Uh, the ideal way is that the providers integrate into their system the payer option. And then you would have, it, it is true, a lot of the savings will go to the payers. So why not integrate them into the providers so that the unit as a whole benefits? I think that's the ideal solution. And frankly, that's the solution all of those countries out there outside the United States that are single-payer companies, they have that solution. They don't have to worry about who's going to benefit. So I think as long as we have separate payers and providers, I think we're going to have to figure out how to come to accommodations. And we'll have to make sure that the payers are willing to help the providers take their transition into 21st century medicine by, uh, for example, uh, paying for the data and, and uh, data generation that will be required to follow individual trajectories. I see within a few years, we'll have clinical trials on scientific wellness that'll compellingly prove the economic benefits and payers will buy in with alacrity when they see the kind of savings. Are, and the same will be true of healthy aging and on so on down the list. So Lee, um, it's hard to believe, but we are, we are pretty much at the end of the program. So I'd like to ask you a final question, given the, the, the enormous amount of information that you've conveyed today. What would you say is the single most important message that you'd like to leave our audience with? The single most important message is you can, can take control of your health and you can play a major role in making sure it's optimized and you have an obligation to yourself to do so. Well, thank you so much, Lee. Um, for those of you in the audience, I'd like to thank you for tuning into this program today on the science of wellness. We've had Dr. Lee Hood, uh, MD, PhD, who's given us a, a visionary uh, overview of a new way of uh, focusing on uh, our own health and the future that lies before us. You know, this is the kind of programming that we uh, bring to you here at the Commonwealth Club of California and have done so for 118 years. And with a fabulous technology team, we've been able to, to morph over to a digital platform. Uh, I encourage all of you to uh, become a member of the Commonwealth Club for a mere $10 a month, which brings all sorts of benefits, uh, including access to programs like this at www.commonwealthclub.org. So again, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to our audience, and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.